When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2, the deuce. Oh, did that make any noise? Okay, no. What it did was, you know those cans that when you turn it over, it sounds like it moves? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. Like a broken yeah. Fisher Price story? <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah. like, very quiet. What are you the drinking? Ice, the, the, ice, the ice melted too quickly. So, I mean, the, the ice house? No. Fun. The electric blue. Uh, hey, well, we'll, the- we'll have an ice house story in a minute, but uh, no, so somehow i'm out of beer what yeah okay so i had i thought a peroni in there i did a make your own six pack it's a lovely a lovely italian brew i thought we could bring some international class to the proceedings and it's gone so either my wife or one of my dogs drank my beer and i'm not happy about it my money's on the dogs i think probably tucker Tucker. i'm thinking tucker Tucker because he actually doesn't even like beer (laughs) i thought it was her but like i'm sitting there looking like where where did where did my beer it's probably probably behind some like jar of pickles or something it's probably hidden behind a uh, yeah the the gallon sized jug of duke's mayonnaise or something (laughs) uh so what i have done and I put some ice in it, and I thought I could rattle it around because I have it in my Yeti lowball tumbler. But most of the ice has already melted, so you couldn't hear it. I'm, I'm actually just drinking some uh, straight Gentleman Jack. Mm. Ooh. Did you get your box from me? The one that I, that contained our zesty, testy, tiesta tea. Mm. Oh, yes, we indeed. Indeed, we did. Did you I've get made, the- I've made said tea. Ha- and? And? It's good. The uh had the uh, passion fruit one, I think is Ooh. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really good. And are we doing a commercial now are yes we, we are will first or what do you we're gonna we'll do the commercial and then i'll introduce it's will. never stopped us before it just plays <laughs> over me yes so so here's what i really liked about the tstt who is a proud proud sponsor i'm sure they're proud to sponsor this of uh the rock and roll heaven podcast the flavors of the tea normally when you get flavored beverages it doesn't really taste like the flavor it builds itself as so if it, it's passion fruit it normally just has a vaguely citrusy kind of sweet taste it actually tastes like passion fruit. Yeah. Like that, that's like the flavors. And I've had that one and you sent me one other one. And I don't remember which that was, but the flavors are very fresh and authentic tasting. Yeah. Which is something I, I, I really like. And I've, I've normally not been a person who drinks a lot of hot tea, but I enjoyed it. And it was really good. Did you like the, did you try the brewmaster out? Yes, I sure did. Nice. Yeah. What's the verdict on that guy? Yeah, that, that thing's amazing. I know. I know. 
<laughs> I mean, it's light. You you just put the you just put the water and you put the tea and it you sit it on your glass and it like it poops it out. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly, that's exactly how they want it. They were like, if you could work in poop. <laughs> tea and poop. Could you, please, could you please compare our product to poop? <laughs> really cement poop in everyone's mind. No, it just you sit it. It's it's I don't know how to explain it, but it's this little thingy and you put hot water in it and you have the tea in it, the loose tea, and it like sits on top of your glass and it and it poops the tea out. It's amazing. We love using we love the, we love the brewmaster. So before I introduce our other oh I know it's going so well by all means. <laughs> don't stop on my account. Just you guys make sure uh to pick up your Tiesta tea. I'm actually drinking the nutty almond which is a calming tea because uh mama started a new job we'll get to that at the end of the show but uh we needed we needed some soothing but uh make sure to head over to tiestatea.com and use the code rockheaven15 when you check out for 15% off your order and that all that info will be in the show notes Whoa. so with that being said i'd like to introduce our other host of the podcast mr Will the thrill. There you go. That's my greeting. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Somebody just took a bitter pill. <laughs> well, I'm drinking a pale ale from the Figueroa Mountain Brewing Company, which has a slightly bitter flavor to it. No pun intended. Now, is that the one I got you from Neverland Ranch? Solvang, yep. Hmm. Yeah, okay. No, it's not Solvang. It's near Solvang. It's near Solvang. Correct. So there's this little town called Solvang that has the large, like the largest year-round Christmas store. Or yeah, something. It's, it's 365 day Christmas store. Yeah, 365 day Christmas store. So my personal nightmare. But uh it's a really fun town. And if you're ever near there, but that's where that's it's literally about 10 minutes from the Neverland Ranch. So when I went on my little vacation to Neverland, uh, we actually stopped in the town that's right across from the road that you takes you to the house. And uh there was like it was this little town that it was seriously like the kind of town you get lost in a time loop in. <laughs> It is, it's literally Gobbler's Knob from Groundhog Day. Thank you, babe. You could totally set that movie in Solvang and it probably wouldn't be much different. No, it wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Except for he'd be drunk more. Yeah, pretty much. So, um, uh, but yeah, so, um, you know, getting on with the episode, we do have two, three deaths that we need mm. to announce. Mm. The first one, although I don't think she ever did any musicals, but because I am a massive Broadway fan, I just wanted to acknowledge the passing of Joan Copeland, who was uh, big in soap operas, and she was also the sister of Arthur Miller. And she had done uh, short films, Love is Like Life, but longer. Uh, she did Broadway shows like Detective Story and Not for Children, Handful of Fire. Uh, she just passed away, and she passed away at the same age that Betty White passed away at. She was 99. Oh, wow. And then we had another one that we actually posted about on our uh instagram and our facebook page which was yeah we did the famed r&b group force mds lost their lead singer that would be jesse d jesse d was the head of that group hip-hop and r&b act sadly passed away at the age of 57 today so that was yeah january january 5th yeah and then um we had one more passing which was close to my heart and i, I did actually post about this on our page but it was it was weird the timing of his passing specifically because i just chose his son in the draft and so that loss was alan larson and he he was born in uh, 1925 and passed away in 2021 and uh, it took 
playbill a really long time to announce that. And the person that actually announced his passing was Lin-Manuel Miranda and Michael mm. Greif, who um, Michael Greif actually directed Rent. And so those two guys, mm. and if you know anything about Jonathan Larson, there was just a massive film about him called Tick, Tick, Boom that came out. And Lin-Manuel Miranda directed that. So it's a really sad thing in the musical world because Alan Larson was an incredible incredible human and we will be covering him on our episodes uh about jonathan so and for that and well there was actually one other one that it was right before we recorded our last episode and we did not mention it and it's not musical it is it is entertainment that would be john madden mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's true yeah i mean yeah. you know there's very few people who are as multi-generational as him because if you were somebody who was about my dad's age you probably thought of him as a football coach and it's not just that he was a coach he of every coach in nfl history with at least a hundred games coach has the highest winning percentage of anybody. Wow. Better than, so better than Bill Belichick, higher even than Vince Lombardi. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Um, after whom the Super Bowl trophy is named. Okay. So then if you're about my age or, and you, you guys' age, then he is, you thought, think of him as being the color announcer on TV, but one of the best ones ever. He did an excellent job of it. He, he loved the game and it really came through, but he explained things in a way that even casual fans could understand. Okay, but you could be five and you know who John Madden is because of his video game. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say was like his video games. I think that they were some of the highest video game, the highest selling video game franchise in history. Like I, 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 think I can't imagine that it's not. Just behind, I think, FIFA. Either they're neck and neck or it's just behind. Or but, Mario is somewhere in there too. Well, no, I'm saying sports. like sports. Okay, not just sports games in general, yeah. franchise. Yeah, sports one. Well, and, and probably all time because, I mean, Madden comes out every single year and has for, yeah. geez, what was the first one? Well, oh. do you remember 90, Madden 94? It was 93 or 94. I mean, I remember just leaping consoles too. I mean, all the, you know, making its way up to the current generation. It's impressive. Mm-hmm. But there is that so Madden curse. Yep, the Madden curse. And the Madden curse. Well, and, and then I, somebody had a great idea. They said two, two of them, A, he should be on the cover of the next Madden. He should. Yeah. And that they, they should rename the all pro team, the all Madden team. Absolutely. Yeah. I would be and completely I'm, in favor of that. And I'm looking at the, the history of it. And it looked like, like the idea for the video game came in 1984. Oh gosh. Well, 1984, you're talking like, primitive video games that would have been like 10 yards yes. 10 yard fight I don't oh know 10 yard that. fight oh, tech mobile awesome tech mobile yeah yeah let me tell you tech mobile randall cunningham <laughs> what a what a weapon or both or tech mobile bolt of bo jackson was like a freaking missile with oh, legs. Yeah. you couldn't go wrong yeah no no this is not a uh, this is not a, a sports podcast. <laughs> can you, we guys, do one? you guys can talk about this on your free time. We'll on that one. Let's 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 get to our one hundred ninety seven thousand four hundred twenty two episodes of Michael Jackson. Woot. All right. which, which, by the way, thank you to our folks on uh, uh, Facebook that have jumped on that joke. <laughs> we appreciate that. Oh, the other two things, the other two pieces of news. Number one, did you guys hear that the Grammys are indefinitely postponed yeah at first they were talking about moving it to april i believe mm-hmm. and then they just said forget it we yeah. don't know what's going on and we're gonna hold off so what so, I mean, why, because of because of covid or yeah yeah covid yeah. related didn't they do it didn't they do it virtually two years ago i can't you know what i actually funny enough i stopped watching 
you know, these award shows, not because it got political, but cheese and crackers, it goes on forever. And so I'm just going to watch the highlights in the, in, yeah. in memoriam. Like, that's all I care about now is I, I want to see the musical numbers and the, Hey, you remember that guy part of right. that. So that's all I, that's all I watch. It's not the nine hour, you know, extravaganza. Yeah. Plus the and red I, carpet and, stuff. And and yeah. The red carpet <clears throat> stuff. God, what? Oh, look what he's wearing. A tuxedo. Woo. Look at him. He's fearless. It's red. Whoa. Anyway, uh, the other thing was that I also picked, if you guys remember in the draft, I picked Aaliyah. Mm -hmm. Do you guys know that she has been dead for 20, almost 20 years? Nope. She's been dead for 20 years, almost 22 years or 21 years. She's coming out with new music this year. How crazy, how crazy is that? Now I, See, the thing is, there are people like Prince and Eddie Van Halen who have these massive caches of, of music in their vaults, and you just hope that you'll get to hear it. Or people like, um, gosh, Tupac, Tupac must have recorded 500 albums before he, you know, before he died because you know, his music came out forever. She yeah. was so young, you wouldn't think there would be much. Yeah, I'm, I'm super interested to see what's on those albums. I, I am too, but it's, it's a different deal because, you know, there's supposedly a million tapes in Eddie Van Halen's vault. Eddie was in his, you know, mid, late 60s. Prince was in his mid 50s when he passed. And there's supposedly something, 50,000 songs or something ridiculous in, yeah. in the Paisley Park. Well, Aaliyah was, what, in her early 20s? Yeah. yeah. You So you wouldn't think there would be that much material left, but... I, I think they're taking stuff and piecing it together and parsecing it, like adding extra voices in on it. So people are like guesting. So like, you know, she was a big collaborator with uh, Missy Elliott. So I'm wondering if Missy uh, didn't kind of produce this stuff for this new album. I'm yeah. really interested to see, cause I actually, I loved Aaliyah's music. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really interested to see. So that's that'll be fun. interesting. To, that'll be interesting to hear for sure. Yeah. So I'll definitely be listening to that. So uh, let's actually get to uh, Michael Jackson. All right. Where did we leave off? Because it's been a few weeks since we actually recorded a Michael episode. Uh, I don't know, but literally, the first, this is not going well already. <laughs> I would like, honey, I would like for you to read the first line <clears throat> verbatim, please. This is not doctored in any way. Michael Jackson's butt was just want to six month came to group decisions, the five brothers plus Joseph, period. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if you think we're doing a great job please visit <laughs> us on patreon <laughs> oh master thespian will the thrill acting thank you okay yeah. look at it dennis so it's a perfect circle <laughs> i'm just in sermon so let's see uh if i have have it at all nope i don't remember i don't <laughs> remember i don't remember where we were uh, I, shouldn't ask I shouldn't ask questions. It just complicates things. <laughs> you should not, you should not ask questions. I it'll just send us down a long long path. But let's talk about Michael Jackson's butt. Apparently, <laughs> a whole episode on that. Whole yeah. episode. Uh, okay, so Michael Jackson. If I remember what I actually was writing, Michael Jackson was pretty darn powerful at this time when it came to like personal stuff. Uh, when it came to group decisions, though, it was five brothers plus Joseph. So that stood even though Jermaine had left the group, because if you guys remember, Jermaine had left, married Hazel Gordy, and Randy took his place in line. So that's how it still was five to one. And I think that's where you left off as they finally split from Motown. 
I think yeah. that was the end of it. They had left Motown, joined Epic, got into a big fight with Motown. Jermaine stayed behind and they weren't able to record anything until their deal with Motown had been completed. Because Motown also owned every iteration of the Jackson 5 name, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. So right now they are the Jacksons. <laughs> so now they're now they're weighing other names like Tito and them. <laughs> It'll never be Tito. Aww. The Toys Boys. Ah, that would have been a good one. The Toys Boys is not bad. Nobody mm. asked me. I was a zygote. Yeah, no, you, I wasn't you at that even, point. You were probably in your last iteration of life before uh, being yeah. reincarnated into what you are today. So when, when Joseph signed the boys up to CBS TV to do a television series in 1976, Michael made it clear that he didn't want to be part of it. But of course, guess what? Six to one, outvoted. Hmm. Well, five to one, outvoted. And Joe, I mean. I so. mean, well, it was the Jackson five. He was one of the Jacksons, leaving four plus Joseph. So Jackson, so there was five. I, I wasn't told there would be math. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> you almost I made Will spit out his I did not bring a calculator. But he didn't want to do it. And he was outvoted. So the Jacksons was a 30-minute television program that ran for four weeks, featuring the family alongside a myriad of several celebrity guest stars. Okay, so this is live action. This is not the cartoon. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah, and he actually mentioned something about that in a little bit. So that ran for just four weeks alongside those celebrities, and it aired June 16th of 1976. As with the Las Vegas Act, which, oh yeah, we talked about that, the Las Vegas Act, where um, they had kind of set it as a pattern from the Osmonds, and it was really successful. And then that's when Motown was like, we're not going to support you. They're succeeding. We support you fully, you know? <laughs> so uh, with the Las Vegas show, they had LaToya, Janet, and Rebby participate in the television series as well, just like they had in the Vegas act. It was the first time a Black family had ever starred on their own television series. Really? Yes. What, what year is this? 76. Jefferson's? The Jeffersons weren't there yeah. yet? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> also, remember, uh, Janet was like seven or eight when she did Good Times. Are we looking this I'm up? I'm looking up the Jeffersons. This is what Jay... Jeffersons were 1975. So maybe they were one of the first. Uh, I don't so, know. well, was it okay? Did you say? But did you say black family? Yes. Well, see, maybe there's the distinction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would but, think so, like, yeah. Well, because also one was Sanford and Son. Oh, that was. Early. But they weren't actually. They weren't. Um, yeah, they weren't actually kin. Yeah. So that's the caveat. So you did have the Jeffersons, but they weren't related. They, they weren't. Related. They weren't an actual family. <laughs> family show. But yeah. like, and, well, because there had been shows like you know the Osmonds had a show and crying out loud, I think didn't uh, like the Starland vocal band had a show. And, Dude, everybody, the everybody, Smothers everybody, Sunny and Cher. Yeah. Yes, everybody had a show. Like everybody had a friggin' show back then. Dusty Springfield had her own show. Right. You know, it just it that's that's what you did. So they were the first black family that ever had their own TV show. And if the show had decent ratings, not even good ratings, decent ratings, there's a chance that CBS would pick it up as a series. And it should be known that Michael was miserable because we talked about this before. He never saw himself as an actor, a host, or a comedian. He was a performer. He was a singer. And because of the grueling production schedule, there was no time to polish any of the routines. And he hated going on stage and feeling unprepared. Unfortunately for Michael, the ratings were really good. And because of that, CBS ordered more episodes. Huh. New episodes of that show began to air in 1977. Hey, we're getting closer to the 80s, guys. Woo. 
So, uh, you know, even though it made him really upset, the whole family signed on the dotted line and there you go. Another thing that happened in 1977 was they hit the number one spot on the Billboard's Hot 100s with a cover. And no, I'm not talking about the Jackson 5. I'm talking about 1977. Manford Man's Earth Band covered Blinded by the Light and reached the number one spot of the year. (laughs) There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, the federally mandated Manford Man's Earth Band reference of the podcast has officially been satisfied. Thank you. And literally, any member of Manford Man's Earth Band who would like to record that with us, we welcome it. Awesome. And it was done by the boss originally in an absolutely terrible version. It's a horrible version. And I love the boss. You know I love Springsteen, but that version is just not good. His version of that song sucks. We should have a slot nuts about covers that are better than the original. Oh, absolutely. Yes, Yes, well, all of mine would probably be Bruce Springsteen songs. Yep. So getting back to Michael, he referred to it as that stupid TV series. It was a dumb move to do it, and I hated every minute of it. Now, Michael's instincts about the program were accurate. The Jacksons, the show, proved to be more trouble than it was worth. Apparently, someone at CBS TV accidentally used a picture of the family with Jermaine in it in a TV guide advertisement for the show. Okay, see, here's the thing. Like, normally, be like, oh, that, you know, oh, that's that sucks. That's really sad. Womp womp. They uh, like, like, (laughs) there apparently there was a a Harry Potter reunion, and they kept using pictures of Emma Roberts instead of Emma Watson. Oh, how did they make that mistake? I don't, I don't know. Good gravy. But like, womp womp. They went back and they digitally changed it, so now it's fixed. But you couldn't do that back in 1977. So. Joseph saw the ad and alerted CBS to the mistake, and they pulled the ad, and they sent a letter to Motown apologizing (laughs) and promised that it would never happen again. (laughs) That was dumb. (laughs) It was too late. Motown used that accident as an opportunity to amend its original lawsuit against the group. They raised their damages from $5 million to $20 million. Michael Roshkind said that the mistake had a severely damaging effect on our credibility and caused real dollar damage. Like, ah, uh, boo-hoo. Come on, yeah. Now, Motown may have gone a little bit overboard because the ad was literally half a page and the artwork was so blurry that you couldn't recognize Jermaine in the picture. <laughs> so, like, honestly, this is just Motown having a grudge. Now, in the end, Barry would be awarded $600,000 in damages. Oh, that's including, ridiculous. Yeah, including unpaid advances, some compensation for the group having signed with uh, CBS before the Motown contract had expired, which was a breach of contract. And this was after the extensive case, which Joseph had admitted that he signed the contract without reading it. So had he not admitted that, there might have been like some open door that he could have claimed like, oh, I'm just, you know, I didn't understand it. But the grand total for the Jacksons leaving Motown ended up being around $2 million. Holy monkey. That was also figuring out that the group owed about $500,000 for the songs that they had recorded but that had not had been released. Remember, we talked about that being a stipulation in the contract. Well, that contract just locked. I mean, they had everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that has never happened in the music industry with first-time artists. We've, and we've certainly never covered it here. No, I've, it's an anomaly. Weird. Here comes the anomaly. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> the, most, the, the most important and surprising to some was that the Jacksons actually agreed to surrender the royalties due to them on recordings that they had made 
before December 1st, 1979, and on any future releases of recordings made before the 11th of March, 1976. In other words, any and all of their hits. Ouch. Yeah, ouch is right. The first album on Epic Records was released in the fall of 1976. I've read it in some place that was released in the spring of 77. So I, depending on what you know, you're using as your litmus, that's, it could be the fall of 76 or spring of 77. The Jacksons is the 11th studio album by the Waltons. I'm kidding. It's the Jacksons. The band's first album for Epic under the name, the Jacksons. I'm just picturing, good night, Michael. Good night, Jermaine. Good night, Tito. (laughs) Good night, Tito. (laughs) Good night, Randy. Good night, Latoya. Good night, Janet. You kids shut up. Don't make me come in there. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. It's a very different show. Sorry, Joseph. (laughs) So the Jacksons was the first album for Epic under the name, the Jacksons, following their seven-year tenure at Motown as the Jackson Five. Blues Way was one of the first songs that Michael had ever written And The Style of Life was written by the brothers, and they were both included on the album. This was the the first time that they had gotten to write something and co-produce. So they were getting what they wanted that they didn't get from Motown. Because Epic basically said, hey, come to us, we'll pay you da-da-da-da-da, but also you can write and produce your own albums. And so they actually made good on part of that. They they got to do the co-producing for most of their songs, but the Jackson spawned one major hit for the group, which was Enjoy Yourself. And I played that on our last episode. Which was actually not the song I thought it was, because I thought Michael has a version of that. But he might. Okay. We'll but see. yeah, it's, time will tell. Yeah, I I don't I, I don't know how we're gonna cover it in the next 25 episodes in the series. If only just, there was a only way. there were time. Yeah. So if you guys haven't heard Enjoy Yourself, go to the last episode, episode five of this podcast, uh, and and you'll get to hear it. If not, then just check it out on YouTube because it's there. Blues Away showcases one of the hallmarks of Michael Jackson's stunning archery. Archery? He's an archer now. He's so you know Hawkeye on the brain. <laughs> we started watching Hawkeye. He's pretty. And you love Hawkeye. Now I love Hawkeye. His stunning artistry as he uses life as inspiration to fuel his art credited to michael as the sole writer blues away centers on a young man succumbing to his depression and does that sound familiar Mm. feeling unable to cope with it it was the first song ever published in the jackson's repertoire where one of its members wrote it it was a token of freedom they were given that they never had at motown i quote The song's seductive jazz soul backdrop contrasts with the seemingly dark nature of its emphatic lyricism. Giving the song an overall melodic quality, the song also stages an early example of Michael's percussive vocal approach where the dramatic hiccups and beatboxing would soon become distinctive mainstays. It's the absolute precursor to many themes of the loneliness and depression that would be revealed on the Jacksons' 1978 coming-of-age masterpiece, Destiny, which functions as an emotionally impacted testimonial chronicling the joys, anxieties, and contradictions of Michael's own journey toward personal fulfillment. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> I should have figured out where I found that from. And for some reason, I did not write that down. And I apologize to the person who wrote it. But if I figure it out, I will put it in the show notes because I sure as heck did not use the phrase percussive vocal approach. Anyway, the album would be certified gold by the RIAA in April of 1977. So let's take a listen to Michael's first songwriting credited release called Blues Away. 
So coming out of that song, what are you guys' thoughts? It sounds like something you'd hear on Sesame Street. I don't know why. Okay. Like the style of music, something about that, which Michael Jackson was on Sesame Street, wasn't he? Yeah, he probably was. I want to say he was like, a, like with Oscar. Very, musically, and, and Michael was very young when he wrote it, but musically it's very simplistic and kind of repetitive. Maybe that's why. I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, like now his his voice still pops. I mean, you, I mean, you still, his, his voice, you hear that and you go, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's yeah. the stuff right there. But I mean, as far as the song goes, he would he would write a lot better stuff later. It, it's very emblematic of that mellow 70s kind yes, of maybe that, and the repetitiveness, TJ, is maybe why I thought Sesame Street, you know, something like catchy and like easy on the ears that would be for children, you know? Right. Yeah. Kids music. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hey LD, I hate to interrupt you, but we do need to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsors. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. And we're back. All right, let's jump back into Michael. 
So while we were also doing that musical break, I did look up that article that it came from, and it was from the website Albumism, A-L-B-U-M-I-S-M, Albumism. And it was written by Brandon Osley back in 2016. So I just wanted to give credit where credit's due. Mm-hmm. So um, just so you guys know, there are people out there writing for you know music that are way smarter than I will ever be and uses those like 10 to 22 cent words. <laughs> and he used them in that. So that was, a, that was the article. So the, the weird thing that happened was in the UK, the song Enjoy Yourself didn't even crack the chart when it was released. It was then reissued and still didn't crack the top 400. And so the problem was that the international record was confusing to the public because Motown preempted that release and they released their own Jackson's album called Joyful Jukebox Music, which was compiled of some of those previously unreleased songs for which the group had been charged. So I think what happened was they muddied the waters like Motown in, I'm pretty sure like Motown in spite was like, we're just going to put this stuff out. Okay. Well, in spite or, or to make cheap, quick money. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I mean, Jackson five was, they were still big and still marketable. So they just, let's just throw out as much stuff that says Jackson five on it as we can and make money. Cash in while they could. Because if you remember back to, um, Oh uh, gosh, early in our heavy hitter series when we did Rick James, you know, in the mid seventies, which is about the time we're talking about, Motown financially was not in the best p- place because a lot of their their huge names from the sixties were kind of starting to fade in popularity a little bit, or jump and ship they, like Diana Ross did, right? Or or they or they left, and so you know they were kind of looking for their next big thing and the mic and the jackson five was it for a while so legitimately maybe they just kept putting that stuff out to make money yeah and maybe i mean it may have been out of spite but it may have just been because hey we've got these songs and all we've got to do is package them and put them out and we'll make some pretty easy money off of it so i mean it may, that may have played a role yeah but also like the jacksons had traditionally not been like super popular for very long in european other international markets Mm. so you know you take you take the good you take the bad you take them both and there you have low record sales my opening suit (laughs) and there you have two tootie and tito (laughs) i wonder if tootie and tito ever met i don't know or the earth has spun off its axis i don't know we get some weird stuff in these coming episodes (laughs) so just you hold that thought for like really hold the thought about tootie are you serious no 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 i'm not i'm not keeping track of now that's not all that's going on with motown right now even though the sales of the jackson state side were doing pretty good and their youtube were their youtube their uk sales were floundering it wasn't as disappointing as what was happening with jermaine His solo album was called My Name is Jermaine, and it hit just 164 on the top 200 in America. The mm. single Let's Be Young Tonight only went to number 55, and in UK, Jermaine did not matter at all. He never even made a dent in the charts. Mm. And most people did agree that Jermaine did deserve better from Motown in terms of promotion. The thing is, if you listen to the earlier stuff, Jermaine is amazing. Like Jermaine was rivaling the lyrics with Michael, who we consider to be an incredible vocalist. So 
you know, it was kind of like, what are you guys doing with them? The band continued to tour as usual. They performed in Memphis in May of 1977. And during that performance, Michael had to escape to a roof of a department store when 10,000 people caused a near riot as they waited in line for hours, hoping to get an autographed copy of the Jacksons. Oh, wow. Yeah. The same night of that engagement in Tennessee, John Seaver, who works for the firm that promoted the Memphis engagement, showed a billboard article to Michael that said Jermaine's album was a bomb. It made an unfair comparison to the Jacksons album saying that theirs was a hit, his was a bomb. Michael didn't say anything about it first, and then he commented that he'll bounce back. I know it. Jermaine won't let this get to him. And he seemed, seemed like genuinely sorry for his brother. Then the article got passed around to the other brothers, finally making it to their father. Now, when Joseph read the feature, he said, and, and I quote from the book, well, it serves Jermaine right. Then he smacked the magazine on the table and walked away. He just continues to charm. <laughs> By the time Michael turned 19 in August of 1977, he was the he was one of the best known entertainers in recent years. Most people who were close to Michael when he was a teenager agree that he never had any serious romantic aspirations at that time. His brothers, however, were extremely active in the dating scene. You know what I'm saying? Michael didn't trust anybody to get close enough to him. But going back to what Diana Ross had told him, it was important for public relations to see him with someone. You remember that whole thing about how she would show up at parties with Barry Gordy after having a huge blowout fight and they'd be making kissy faces and everything. So it was also so, Joe bringing girls into like his hotel room at night and it was really creepy. I've I mean, thought about this long yeah. and hard. I might actually just have an episode on how much Joe Jackson was a terrible person. <laughs> so that'll be part 117 or. <laughs> 122. Okay. Okay. We got to so have an entire episode that bubbles I'm the sorry. I, I have a question. Okay. So, Michael, how old is he at this point? He's 19. Oh, good Lord. 19. And he, he's so 19 and he is not, he's not showing interest in dating or. No, he's too, he's, he's honestly too scared. He doesn't yeah. trust anybody to let them get close enough to him. And that's the thing is like, we really kind of dive into this in part eight. I wish I was joking. I'm not, but like in part eight, he, you'll see him start doing things that we, have realized that in the press are going to seem weird mm. yeah know? so 19 and not dating i guess that means he was uh, there's nothing he could do but beat it <laughs> he chose uh, someone to to come hang on, out with that's and, bad oh <laughs> i had to make the joke it's human nature oh god stop it both of you stop oh, it the way you make me feel <laughs> I don't want to hear any more. Will, that's enough. Leave me alone. God, I every single one of you. I leave me alone. Both of you can leave me alone. Uh, don't oh. stop till you get enough. <laughs> this is my fault. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the man in the mirror and I'm blaming myself. Oh, God. <laughs> Look, all I'm going to say is that you don't really care about me. Hey, do you remember the time... <laughs> Get out of my house. Get out. Get out. Go. Go. I'll be go, a stranger go, in Moscow. Go, go pet a cat or something. You guys make me want to oh, scream. It's human nature. I'm going to go to prison, and then they're just going to call me a smooth criminal. I hate both of you. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Tatum O'Neill. What did you just say? Say, say. I'm going to mute him. <laughs> I am mute. Just, I, 
All right, I'll, I'll stop. I promise. I promise. I stop promise. it. No. I, no, I no. Just, I'm not doing anything. No. Will? What? You, you've got <laughs> something. No. I'm going to behave myself. Okay. So the person that he chose as like the first person to be seen out in public with was Tatum O'Neill. Was Darty Diana? No, we'll actually get to that. Ah, oh, damn it. You stole mine. We'll get to that. Tatum O'Neill. Yep. Tatum O'Neill. She was. 13 in the summer of 1977. Yeah. Yep. All right. 13. That's so appropriate. She would be what most would consider to be his first girlfriend. I'm going to say a whole bunch of words, and only some of them are going to make sense. But Michael and Tatum first met at a party hosted by Paul McCartney aboard the Queen Mary. What? <laughs> okay. Yep. Good Yep. So if you guys actually, uh, the Queen Mary is actually uh, docked in Long Beach, California, and it is awesome. We've had a great time there. Every single time yeah. we've gone there, it's been a fun time. It's just, if you if you are either visiting or live in California, have not been to the Queen Mary, dude, go. Our friends awesome. got married on the Queen Our Mary. Our friends yeah. got to get married. They had not actually spoken to each other until the spring of 77 when Michael had spotted Tatum with her father at a club in Los Angeles. Now- Okay, I will say this is jumping way ahead, but if you guys remember, Tatum O'Neill's father is. I can't. I know. I know. That's why I kicked myself. It's Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill was an. I don't know. Ryan O'Neill. No, I do know. I do know her, who, who her first husband ended up being. Well, I'm 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 making a, a very specific connection. Uh, okay. Ryan uh, O'Neill was in a relationship with Farrah Fawcett. Huh. Okay. Farrah Fawcett died two hours before Michael Jackson. That's right. I oh wow, that. that's right. You're right. I yeah. About that. Yeah. But okay, so, just so I'm, just so I'm making sure I'm thinking of the right person. Ted O'Neill is one who ended up being married to John McEnroe for a while, right? Maybe I don't actually have a lot about her, but I do remember that she was the youngest person to win an Academy Award for Paper Moon. Yes. And she basically smoked and cussed her way to an an Oscar. People have done which weird is things. Awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> They had a brief encounter afterwards, and Tatum had invited Michael to a dinner party at the publisher Hugh Hefner's Homely Hills Estate. Is that the Playboy Mansion? I know nothing yeah, about Yeah, no, no, it, it would be. I mean, you should look at locations in Los Angeles and be like, Queen Mary, Hugh Hefner's house, wee! Hey, okay, but also okay. let's talk about, it's a 13 and a 19-year-old going to the Playboy Mansion. Right. Long, so yeah. I was going to say, so this 13-year-old this and a 19-year-old who met aboard the Queen Mary at a party hosted by Paul McCartney, are now going to the Playboy Mansion. Yep. Okay. Yep. Carry on. Sure. And, oh, no. It gets it gets this? even more fun. They went and they watched Roots. At the Playboy Mansion? Yes. They watched the miniseries Roots. They got bored, um, and they decided to go into the hot tub. All right. Neither of them had bathing suits. But oh, but no, 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 no. Actually, it's, okay. it's even weirder. It's scared. even weird. It's even weirder than you think it is, because he was like, hey, Tatum, yeah, let's go into the hot tub. And he's like, but but I don't have a bathing suit. So Tatum was like, oh, Jeeves. And one of the assistants at Hugh's place just disappeared and showed up with two bathing suits that fit them. It's not like Janet from a good place. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, poof, there it is. Yeah. A, a BLT, right? Yeah, BLT. Yeah. That's so, a, I'm just going to say, though, you're getting into a hot tub at the Playboy Mansion. That, mm, yeah, I have questions. Yuck. Do you remember, Yuck. though, that, that when they had that weird break, they had like yeah. a 
a weird infectious outbreak after people swam in the grotto. <laughs> oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. You know, yeah, probably, probably grotto, yeah. Yeah, of the of yeah. the cloud. Probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was just like some weird thing went around, like bacterial infection went around a couple years ago. Like before, what a, like, what a shocker! I mean, let's just be honest. You're, I mean, there's a party at the Playboy Mansion. The, the hot tub probably looks like a big bowl of egg drops. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that sounds horrifying. Yeah, I believe the term you're looking for, hon, when you said outbreak was crabs. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> for future reference, note to self. Do not drink whiskey while doing your podcasting yet. <laughs> or, <laughs> or do it every time. I, or, or do it every time. I guess it depends on whether people like this or not. I don't know. <laughs> let's let's see how they let's see how these people enjoy this episode. So years later, a rumor would go around that they were nude together. And Michael basically was like, Oh, we were not naked. He said, We had on bathing suits. And why do people always have to find something dirty about everything? And it's true, like people will literally try to find anything salacious out about anything. Although, when you have a 19-year-old and a 13-year-old in a hot tub at the Playboy Mansion, it lends itself to sal salacious gossip. I mean, uh, unfortunately, an adult, an adult male and a prepubescent female were in a hot tub at Hugh Hefner's house. Somebody might say something about it. Yeah, and and both of them are famous, right? So, anyway. If you guys know the story about Tatum O'Neill, then you're in the know. She had won a Oscar at age nine for her chain smoking, swearing role as a like the daughter of a Bible Belt swindler, <laughs> played by her father in the film. And the thing is, her own childhood was very difficult, so you can kind of see why Michael would sort of gravitate toward her. I think they had a lot in common, actually. Yeah, he he tried to. Uh, <clears throat> hit on his own daughter at the funeral of his lifelong partner, Farrah Fawcett, because he hadn't seen her in so many years that he just saw a blonde girl in a black dress and was like, I'm going to hit on that. Oh, no. That's a Game of Thrones level of... Ooh, that, yeah. is, that is Theon Greyjoy. Yeah. Grody. That's, yeah. That is, uh, that's Grody. Yeah. But apparently when he figured out it was his daughter, he was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> So just a little bit about her. She was born to actress Joanne Moore and Ryan O'Neill, and her parents split up when she was three. So for a while, she lived on a ranch with a dying horse and some dead chickens and a mother who was addicted to drugs. That is straight verbatim from the book that I was reading. At age seven, uh, Tatum, she would cook breakfast and lunch for herself and her younger brother, Griffin. Her father was permitted to visit her on the weekends, and she did become the youngest person ever to win an Academy Award for Paper Moon two years after that hmm. and so he seemed to have a connection with her michael did because of course he saw his mother as a saint and he would hear stories about tatum's mom and hear what she was going through and knowing what he went through with joe he could relate and well, he's but I, want you to but I want you to think about something a little disturbing so she's living with her mother who is per what you read a drug addict and she's seven years old and having to cook her own meals um for her and and her sibling and her mom's the one that got custody yeah, yeah. yep Oof. michael actually said he liked her because she was a survivor and the fact was that ryan took over her career the same way joseph had taken over his in his autobiography Michael wrote that Tatum was his first love hmm. after Diana. <laughs> he said, did he didn't say, however, that their relationship was strictly platonic. Also, I, I mentioned she was 13, right? I probably should mention she was 13. Did I mention? Yes, you did. 13? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Now, since we're talking about relationships, we should talk about the subject of him being gay. Just laying it out there flat. Okay. People speculated about his sexuality since he was a teenager, and it could have been for a myriad of reasons. 
It could have been because he was shy or because he had a higher pitched voice or because he would avoid eye contact. God only knows. And he had been dealing with these rumors for years. So he was kind of used to them. But at age 19, a rumor spread about him that really upset him. And that was that he was going to have a sex change and marry a man named Clifton Davis, who wrote the song Never Can Say Goodbye. And, so and who starred and who starred in uh, Amen and That's My Mama. Clifton Davis? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. This story was so widespread that it actually showed up in Jet Magazine. Like, how messed up is that? So after the, this rumor had been circulating for months, he was actually at Caesars Palace to see Diana Ross perform when he ran into Clifton Davis. A photo session was set up afterwards, and he was there holding Diana Ross's hand. And Clifton was there holding Leslie Uggam's hand. And all Michael could think about during this photo sh session was this photo session was that they were basically going to Photoshop this picture to make it look like they were holding hands. He extremes he 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 admits that he was extremely paranoid about that. The author of the book, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, asked him in a 1979 interview, just for the record, are you gay or not? Just flat out ask it. Verbatim, Michael's response was, and I quote, no, I am not gay. Oh, I'm not a homo. People make up stories about me being gay. I have nothing else to do. I'm not going to let it get to me. I'm not going to have a nervous breakdown because think people think I'm having sex with men. I don't, and that is that. So jumping ahead just a little bit, Ian Halperin the author of 19, 2009's Unmasked, The Final Years of Michael Jackson, reports that Jackson was gay. Tara Benelli suggested that he had a romantic male companion, and Randall Sullivan, the author of 2012's Untouchable, The Strange Life and Tragic Death of Michael Jackson, calls him pre-sexual. Sullivan claims, without any real evidence, that he was a 50-year-old virgin when he died. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a lot of problems with that. There's so many problems with that. We've talked about this before on this podcast. I don't care if you're gay and it's nobody else's business if you're gay. And if I need to say it a little louder to the people in the back, I will. It is nobody's business whether or not you are gay. And who cares if you are talented? Does it matter? You people are assholes. Yeah, we dealt with this in the, the Whitney Houston episode, if you remember, because there were yeah. rampant rumors about her sexuality. I mean, she was a little more combative about it. But yeah, it's like, who's... Who, who cares you know yeah the public especially back then let's just be honest yeah but who cares you're living in the age of rock hudson and freddie mercury like yeah no no but i'm no but i'm saying you we we can you can't apply current day standards and mores to shit from the 1970s people people did care they shouldn't have <laughs> but they did yeah the problem. I mean, back back then, that would have been like a. You're still talking about a a, a period of time when uh, you know singers and and um, uh, actors and whatnot would have to hide that. Yeah, accurate. I, I mean, you know, it's not it's not like it is now. I mean, to maintain a career in a lot of cases, you had to put forward a certain image and a front. And so, I mean, to us now, it seems silly, but back then, like that's probably something like everybody cared about. Mm, yeah. And there's a salacious side of people even now that makes them care about stuff like that that I don't understand. But I mean, back then, it re back then, it really it re to a lot of people that was like a really big deal. Shouldn't have been, but was. A couple things. Yeah. The problem with those theories is the women who were in a position to know absolutely contradicts them, including Michael Jackson's ex-wife, Lisa Marie Presley, that said the couple's sex life was very hot, and other women who have pointed to being romantically in relationships with him, including Ola Ray, who was the co-star of the video Thriller, who said that they made out pretty hot and heavy, mm. 
And <clears throat> Teresa Gonzalez, who said that she was Jackson's girlfriend while he was filming The Wiz in 1970, claims that they had sex more than once. So I'm going to editorialize for just a second and just say, I don't think that Michael would have allowed himself to have a, a homosexual relationship for a couple reasons. Number one, he was a strict Jehovah witness, Jehovah's witness at this time. And their core belief is that only a few of their followers actually get to go to heaven. Again, this is not a Jehovah's Witness podcast, so if you'd like to find out, I suggest the Jehovah's Witness episode of Time Suck yeah. or Jehovah's Witness Church episode of the Illuminati. Uh, or, wait in, player. Or, wait until some, or wait until some kindly old lady knocks on your door and offers you a copy of Watchtower. Yeah, hmm. not the only time we're going to be talking about the Jehovah's Witness and anything that I talk about. So the other thing that I told you was that Michael was really concerned with public relations, and he was honestly afraid of other people. So I don't think he would have allowed himself to have a homosexual relationship, even if he was leaning toward one, because he'd be so afraid that that person would run to the media. And so his sexuality will come into play much later on when we get into the allegations that start cropping up at about 1993. And, that, and back then, that could also have been a deal breaker for his career. Yeah. And the thing is, even now, like if you, if a celebrity tries to have a relationship with somebody, immediately that person gets screenshots and takes it to the press. Mm -hmm. So you think about what would happen to Michael back in the day, like somebody could run. Like, him. And, it, yeah. and it would have been much more damaging then than it would be now. But there's still a weird purient part of, of people that they still care about this. The number one trending topic on Twitter this morning when I woke up was that Jill Scott might have had a sex tape, which turned out to be fake and not, not a real thing. But like people are losing their minds. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know, but for some reason that this is something that interests people. I don't know why, but it does. Now, I'm also going to have Will read the next line of this verbatim, please, because this is, yeah, this is fun. You're going to love this. All right, go ahead, honey. Uh, once again, I will reiterate that this has not been altered in any way. Can you imagine the burden that has been daily weather at age 19? <laughs> He has had Q3, and that's the letter Q and the number three, questions about his sexuality, and he's also got trouble with his own self-image, end quote. I spelled the word question with the number three. With a three, which is quite remarkable if you think about it. I'm the one that doesn't drink. Remember when we actually talked about how bad his acne was? Now, yep. dog, dog pile that on with Joseph making fun of him about his nose. Huh. And not only that, but like all his brothers always called him big nose and he has acne and of course like he starts to recoil from any kind of normal life out of the spotlight his mom would recall he didn't want to leave the house and when he did he kept his head down he was no longer a caring outgoing devilish boy he was quieter more serious and more of a loner this is the like first inkling that we're gonna see of kind of the shut-in that he's going to become later on. Beside the fact that he was actually afraid of driving, Michael didn't want to go to the DMV to take his driver's test. He was afraid of being recognized, and at one point, he decided to see if he could basically get special consideration so that he wouldn't have to go down to the DMV for mm -hmm. testing. So, like, I guess there are some places that you can call the DMV and say, hey, I'm not comfortable with coming, can't, can someone come and test me? Gotta you know, out. Yeah, yeah, can we do something? Can we work something out? But the problem was that he was doing it in Encino, California, <laughs> which was so used to having celebrities that they did not consider them special. So he just didn't do it. He never got his license until he was 23. Hmm. 
And that was only at his mother's insistence. Michael's stress intensified when their second album for CBS came out called Going Places. It was released in the winter of 1977, and it was a major disappointment. Epic had received mixed reviews, and the, the album only went gold when everybody was hoping for platinum. But still, like, think about it. He went gold. Still, the label sent the group back to Philadelphia to work with Gamble and Huff again. The title track, Going Places, only went to number 52 on the Billboard Top 100. The album stayed on the charts uh, for a couple weeks at number 63 on the top 200. And in the UK, it hit 45 and only stayed on the charts for a week. No matter how bad they were doing at Epic, they were still doing better than Jermaine was doing in Motown. His Field of Fire album released at the exact same time as the Jackson's Going Places was released, peaked in America at number 174. Oof. And did even worse in the UK. So like the, the Jackson's album hit 63. His didn't even crack the top 150. And on that album, Michael wrote a song that was a completely different kind of song for him uh, called A Different Kind of Lady. And that did become a successful club hit, but it didn't get a lot of radio play. And remember, there are certain songs during this time because disco is really big that they would do these like massive seven, eight minute cuts of songs for the club. But of course, those albums weren't going to get radio play because they were so long. So... <clears throat> They cut A Different Kind of Lady, and that was a, a club hit, but they hadn't had a hit record since the song Mama's Pearl in 1971. I want you guys to think about that. That is a long time to go without a hit. The label wouldn't put up with that either. They wouldn't wait. Well, yeah. okay, it, there was a change in label. So, well, there was, yeah, and but... this this is only their second album with Epic. So, I think they were given a little bit of leadway, but we're gonna, it, but, yeah. but something is gonna pop up in just a second because who is gonna be bothered by this? It's gonna be Joseph. <laughs> it was clear to him that the new label wasn't working out as he had hoped for. So, he decided to meet with Ron Alexenberg. Now, if you remember, he was the one that originally signed the Jacksons to Epic. And they wanted to convince him that the group should be able to write and produce its own material. And he took Michael along with him. Joseph was kind of using Michael as a power play or a bargaining chip. <sighs> the more I learn about this man, the more I kind of despise him. It's just like every time he does something, you're like, I know you're doing it for a good reason. I know what you're, you're doing is good, but you're doing it for a bad reason. James Sidup, who was the Jackson's pianist in the band, he was the one that would do the the all the direction for the percussions, said he was still the soft, tender Michael Jackson that everyone thought he was. But there was something definitely different about him this time. Everyone who dealt with him closely, family included, began to tread softly when dealing with Michael. The quiet power he was gaining was amazing to me. I've never seen anyone have that much influence over people without having a stern attitude. I noticed that when he spoke, people started to listen. He was still quiet and a bit reluctant. Joseph and the other brothers were beginning to give him space. I began to notice that if they saw a lot of displeasure on his face, that they would begin to get worried. For sure, things were changing as Michael was growing up. So in that kind of contradictory, he's so quiet, but he holds so much power. Sometimes that's the case, is it's the one who's not talking that's... It has the most influence, you know? Yeah. Silence is deafening. Can be. Okay. So during that meeting with Ron, Michael and Joseph explained that they were very unhappy with the way that the, the career, there's the Jackson's careers had evolved at CVS and they wanted more control over the process. Michael spoke up. If you can't do it, we need to move on. Hmm. <laughs> 
Now, unbeknownst to Michael and Joseph, the, the new president of Epic, Walter Yetnikoff, had already decided to drop the Jacksons from the label. What's it? What was his name? Yetkin, Yetnikoff. He was on our list of people that we lost in 2021. Was okay. Yeah, I'm 99% really? sure he was, yeah. Woo. Well, I was about to make a terrible joke, and now I'm not gonna. Yeah, the Jacksons were no longer viable, and their time was at an end. If it, it was it was weird because their thoughts were almost aligning with that of Motown, that they were slowly fading out. Practically and pragmatically, the two albums were not successful enough to warrant a third, and Bill Olympi, the head of Epic's West Coast Artist Relations, said that the people that I was working with at CBS really wanted to get them out of the deal. They wanted to get rid of the Jacksons. They wanted me to try to buy them out. And I felt so bad for these guys. I really liked them. I said to myself, oh my God, if I give these people $100,000 to go away, <laughs> they'll take it, pay their bills and be out of the music business forever. <laughs> Lucky for everybody involved, Bobby managed to convince his bosses to give the Jacksons one more chance at Epic. This time, the brother would have more involvement in their work, and if they failed, they would have nobody to blame but themselves. So Michael put forth a proposition that they they were allowed to do all that they wanted to do, and Ron agreed to it. So it was a done deal anyway. Like, here's the thing. This decision was already a done deal. This was all a ruse. This was, did, this, this was unnecessary. That Epic was actually willing to give them a shot at a third album and give them more freedom before Michael and Joseph even walked through the door. <laughs> what they didn't know was the executives just wanted to see that the family had the incentive and the drive to take on their own project before they'd be guaranteed the company's full support. It was all a ruse. Even after two non-well-selling records? I mean... Yeah, I mean, I guess it was kind of yeah. like the, I need to see that you want this and we'll let you have one more shot. Right, but it, I mean, they're willing to take a bath on two albums. That's quite a. They didn't take a bath. Yeah, yeah. They were successful. The, not I mean, the second album, not the second one, yeah. the first. The first one, fair, yeah. So they're, they're one and one at this point. But but also, uh, labels back then were a little bit more patient. That's true. Yeah. Than they would be in later years. I mean, there there are a lot of bands who would end up being huge, and but you can go back and look, and they had three, four, five, six, sometimes seven albums that were were bombs. Yeah. Yeah. But they would continue to nurture them and foster them and actually gave a you know a shit about art which is something that went by the wayside real quick after this yeah I, it's it's really interesting too because you can also have you know a hit single but the album won't do great and and it's different now because now you can buy single songs or you can buy i pay 9.99 to spotify and stream yeah. and stream whatever the heck i want i don't have to listen i can listen to one song by you know um Ice House? Yeah, Ice House. Yeah, Ice House. <laughs> Electric I listen, Blue! I can listen to a song, you know, by Selena, and then I can listen to a song by the Flying Burrito Brothers, and I can listen to whatever I want. And all of them I, will get almost one-tenth of a cent per play. Yeah. Almost. Yep. <clears throat> Quiet. The Spotify overlords will hear you and destroy us. <laughs> but back in, back in those days, you either could get like a... A 10 inch or 45 you know like it's you can get the same play you could get a single or you could get a full album so if they didn't release it as, an, as a single you had to get the whole album and so that was a big problem uh for as far as media goes because if you didn't like a particular song chances were you weren't going to purchase the whole album to see if there were other songs maybe you liked but some people did that and it did goose album sales in some cases yeah, yeah. i mean there is a I, I don't think it's true but there is a rumor that taylor swift's father bought fifty thousand 
copies of her album. It's pretty funny to like boost her sales when she was first so okay. I don't. Oh no! She- oh no! Hey, that that was very common at one point. You think so? Oh, I, I don't know about, about that one in particular, but I remember seeing that there were something like fifty or hundred thousand copies of one of Shania Twain's albums at a landfill in Nashville that like her label went and bought them. What? It doesn't so, so, like- to, so that she would to, to ensure that she would have a mammoth big debut week, which then of course would it gets more attention and it, it propels you forward and all that stuff. It's a calculated thing and it worked. But, but also, that, I like I remember saying that that was a thing that was fairly common at one point. But also you'll, you'll recognize that uh, in the past, a lot of times successful artists would have one album that wasn't that great. It was their first album and it would be their sophomore track, their sophomore album that would kick them into stardom. And now you yeah. have artists that have to fight to get their sophomore album even out. And there is that sophomore curse. So like, right? But but you have to remember we're in the seventies now, where you had bands like Journey, who put out I don't even remember how many albums until they actually had a hit. Aria Speedwagon, same. Genesis was Ooh. kind of successful, but not not gigantically so until they made a change to somebody that whose name we shall not mention. Yeah, so they were very um, upset. <laughs> right, but but I mean that but. But my point is, is that labels would actually take time with artists and nurture them and give them time to grow and find themselves. And then that went away very quickly. But at this point, that's still a thing that ha- would happen sometimes. So now, So let's actually take the time to jump over to a friend of Michael's that we have actually talked about a lot. And that's Diana Ross. At this time, she was determined to be a film star and she was anxious to find a property to star in. And she wanted to claim responsibility for finding, unlike her other two opuses, which were Lady Sings the Blues and Mahogany, and those had been Motown finds. And it seems like almost, she was almost obsessed with the idea of the I saw it first Mm. kind of thing. Because remember, she was the one that took responsibility for finding the Jacksons. So it almost seems like this was the same thing. Now, it's debatable what happens, but the same time she was looking for a project, they had a deal with Universal and Barry Gordy. Motown Productions had acquired The Wiz, which was a musical that was based on L. Frank Bombs. <laughs> what happened just, here? Just read that. Uh, Frank L. based okay. on... on Oh, wow. So, I again, I will read this verbatim. Here we go. <laughs> Motown Productions had acquired The Wiz, a musical that was based on L. Frank Baum's squad, that Kathy Wonderful Wizard of Oz. End quote. <laughs> wow. Thank you. You're hitting all the high notes tonight. I am yeah. amazing. So, yeah, The Wiz was based on L. Frank Baum's squad, that Kathy Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Yeah. It was... So... The Wiz was based on, you guys know, L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. It was uh, actually a book series. It wasn't just one single book. It was actually a book series. And that was what The Wizard of Oz was based on. And if you guys remember, Return to Oz, and now we have Wicked. I think there there are four books in the original series, I think. I have four or five. Something like that, yeah. So The Wiz was an all-Black production, and it actually opened on Broadway in January of 1975, and had gone on to win seven Tony Awards. So it kind of seemed like, oh, this could be a hit. Now, having hindsight be 2020, we look at Broadway shows that have done phenomenally and the movie were just crap. Mm-hmm. The two that I can tell you right now, and I'll start with the, the easiest one because it's shooting fish in a barrel, uh, Dear Evan Hansen, which mm. 
you know, was like the Tony Darling the year after Hamilton came out and people really wanted an adaptation. And then Ben Platt's dad became the producer. So he was hired on, but he looks like a 45 year old guy in a weird wig, supposed to be a 17 year old kid in high school. And it just didn't work. And everyone hated it. Some people like it. Most people hate it. But then the one that, that is almost like the, the genesis of the, oh, please don't do that award goes to the producers, which actually still today holds the record for the most amount of Tony Awards that were won by a Broadway production. They even trump Hamilton. Well, the producers are interesting because it was a film, a musical, and then a film again. So it's it's kind of a it's, weird It's the yeah, same transition. as Hairspray was. Yeah, good point. Hairspray did the same good thing. Point, yeah. But like the musical, the actual Broadway musical broke all kinds of box office records, recouped. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it was weird because it made a profit and, mm-hmm. and everybody loved it. People ate it up. And then the movie comes out and it's just crap. Well, I thought you were going to mention two other ones. Uh, the much maligned Phantom of the Opera. Oh, no, please Cameron don't. Cameron McIntosh. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Uh, and Cameron then, of McIntosh course, uh, the, the most recent dare film, Cats. I mean. Cats yeah. should have never. Okay. Cats is. No, 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 no. Cats is different because Cats sucks as a musical and it sucks as a musical. So it's consistent. It's consistently <laughs> shitty. Forgive me for those words, but Cats. No. <laughs> I just want them to release the butthole version of Cats and I'll be very happy. You know. Essentially, essentially, the two of you just spoke Latin to me for five minutes. <laughs> I have no freaking clue what y'all just said. I don't know what any. I I I'm just sitting here like, what? Are the, what? And, uh, I heard something and, about cat. I heard something about cats and buttholes or something. And, and, and the adaptation of Rent was a little squeaky too. Yeah, yeah. Christopher Columbus should it's, it's never come down. It's tough to go from stage to film. It really is. It is, but yeah. I think that Lin Manuel Miranda proved that it was good when we watched Tick Tick Boom. I'm just gonna say. All right, I'm gonna end this. Like, I need, other... like ser- seriously, y'all should come with subtitles. I have <laughs> uh, you guys, uh, the only theater that my brother has ever sat in was probably called the Theater Bar. Well, no, no. To his credit, he took us that live production of A Christmas Story, and that was awesome. Yes, he did. That, that yeah, was that awesome. Was yeah, and, and I, I was I... in. Uh, and as we established earlier this week, I was in two Stephen Sondheim productions. He was in Gypsy at the Extra. Chester Little Theater Extra. when we when, I, when we were and kids. A... And you said it was Gypsy, and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum? Correct. As a page boy? Yeah. I was just Assuming. like, ran- I was random child, and a funny <laughs> thing happened on the way to the forum. And in Gypsy, I was literally a newsboy and child number three. Did mom direct that? I played, I played two roles. Thank you. Nate, wait, did mom or dad direct that? Did not direct, but we're, we're involved in some way, though, yeah. My dad directed Noises Off, didn't he? I want to say, I think, I want to say that's right, yeah. Uh, they, they, were, they were both involved in some way. They didn't direct it. Um, yes, and I don't and remember I, who did, but it wasn't them. I was in, fa- I was in the Fantastics mm-hmm. in the Little Theater. That was my, that and was then, my- I, then I wrote, I wrote and starred in A Midsummer <clears throat> Night's Redneck. Uh, I when, I was a senior in, when i was a senior in high school where uh banks dressed in drag and then um <laughs> if you remember that and then uh i was in a play in college called hold me now i just want to point out that we're in a community of a lot of podcasts with our network and a lot of people are always saying oh what <clears throat> podcast should i check out is there anything new and i submit to you this we are the only podcast where two-thirds of the perform of the presenters have been performers at the Chester Little Theater. I guarantee it. I, that, nobody else, the market no, no one else holds that yeah. distinction. Yeah. 
That is that is get you, yeah, yeah, get you some of that, Mistress Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call her out. Well, I love Mistress Carrie. Bad rock and roll archaeology. <laughs> seriously, listen to the podcast. Yeah, good. no, seriously, yeah. listen to those podcasts. They're incredible and they are way smarter than we will ever. Oh, yeah, be. They're, they're incredible for people who were never at the Chester Little Theater. <laughs> Uh, Again, we're punching up on this one. Yeah. yeah. So, so 1977, Rob Cohen was heading up Motown Productions and had been trying to launch it for some time. So he intended the film to actually be a low-budget film starring Stephanie Mills, who had actually starred in the Broadway show and who would become friends with Michael Jackson, actually. She was a Motown artist, even though her experience with the company was a, let's just say, Less than satisfying for her. <laughs> her one album for the label was called, for the first time, it was a commercial disaster. However, Diana Ross got wind of what was happening, and she decided that she wanted to play Dorothy. So it was all over for Stephanie Mills. Practically everyone in Motown agreed that the 33-year-old, just think about that, 33-year-old, this year she will have been 10 years younger than us at this point, at 33 years old, Diana was too damn old to play anybody's Dorothy, which is rude, but I get it. That'd be like me trying to be a page boy in the Newsies. But Ross went around Gordy and convinced executive producer Rob Cohen, who was up at Universal Pictures, to arrange a deal that he would produce the film if Ross was cast as Dorothy. Gordy and Cohen agreed to the deal. Pauline Kale, a film critic, described Ross's efforts to get into the film production as perhaps the strongest example of sheer will in film history. After film director John Badham learned that Ross was going to play the part of Dorothy, he backed out of being the director, and Cohen replaced him with Sidney Lumet. Of his decision not to direct The Wiz. John Badham recalled telling Cohen that he thought Ross was a wonderful singer. She's a terrific actress and a great dancer, but she's not this character. She is not the little six-year-old Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Though 20th Century Fox had financially backed the stage musical, they ended up exercising their first refusal rights to the film production, which gave Universal an opening to finance the film. Initially, Universal was so excited about the film's prospects, they didn't set a budget for the production because typically you go, okay, I'm willing to spend this much money on this. So this is actually from Michael Jackson's book, Moonwalk. The The Wiz was an updated Black-oriented version of the great movie, The Wizard of Oz, which I had always loved. I remember that when I was a kid, The Wizard of Oz was shown on TV <laughs> once a year and it was always on Sunday night. Kids today can't imagine how important it was for all of us growing up because we didn't grow up with video cassettes and the expanded viewing that's provided today. There was no DVR. There was There's no, no yeah. DVR. No, there was not. No, no, there was no streaming. There was not. Not even VCRs. Elda, you you might you may be just old enough to remember that, but that was an event. Like, oh my God, the Wizard of Oz comes on this Sunday. It was my calls. Yep, we're gonna tailgate. Nobody bothered me. The friggin' wisdom Oz is <laughs> Here's the thing. You think I wouldn't remember this, but one of my earliest memories, I was still in a high chair. It was Easter Sunday, and I don't know what restaurant it was, <laughs> but it was where the Captain's Galley used to be in Chester. Yep. And mom yep. would get me oyster stew, which is weird yes. now because now I'm allergic to seafood. You can't eat seafood, right. But, but she would also give me the oyster crackers. And I remember freaking out because I couldn't <laughs> tell time. And we were having dinner and I'm like, 
I'm pretty sure it was like Easter Sunday or Mother's Day. It was a Sunday. And we would have to go home quickly so we wouldn't miss the Wizard of Oz. That is the Wizard of Oz. one of my very first memories was. Because if you, because back then, if you missed something, then you were just screwed. Yeah, you, you didn't get to watch it. it wasn't, you weren't going to get to see it again. Well, I mean, you'd get to see it a year later, but there and was no did. like, oh, well, let me back that up. I mean, that, that stuff didn't exist. And, and that's interesting that that's one of your first memories because I'm not making this up. One of my first memories in life was pooping in Grandma Brawley's bathtub. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> It was podcast guys. We will talk about. I was going to say like, and then I mean, and it it was it was a freaking black snake. I mean, that thing was a foot long. <laughs> I apologize for I apologize for nothing. <laughs> this is magic. <sighs> okay, so so you guys, we've established that that was an event, like enough to where it's one of my very first memories of like being at that restaurant and telling mom like. Flat out tell her, we got to go because Wizard of Oz is coming on. And it was like five o'clock and it didn't come on to like eight, but I had no concept of time. But like, yes, that was an event. And so you can understand why Michael thought it was so important. So Michael had actually gotten the opportunity to not only watch the Wizard of Oz on TV, but he had actually seen the Broadway show as well. He actually saw it six or seven times. And he later became friends with Stephanie Mills, who played Dorothy on Broadway. He always told her that it was an absolute tragedy that that show couldn't have been preserved on film, which is a really interesting thought because he actually, like, I don't know if it's this episode or the next one, but he actually talks about how upset he gets because he can't see a lot of vaudeville actors from the the 20s and 30s doing their acts because he could have learned from them. But that Stephanie was an incredible Dorothy And he would have loved to have captured that on film for other people to see. Um, And if you'll remember, it was Barry Gordy who financed Pippin. I I keep forgetting that. Yeah. It's crazy. Funny enough, it was actually Barry who said that he hoped that Michael would audition for The Wiz. There's this like weird back and forth like between this. And this is from Moonwalk. Michael said, I was very fortunate that he felt that way because I was bitten by the acting bug during that experience. I said to myself, well, this is what I'm interested in doing while I have a chance. And this is it. When you make a film, you're capturing something elusive. You're stopping time, the people, their performances. The story becomes a thing that can be shared by people all over the world for generations and generations. And if you guys know, Michael did audition for the part of the Scarecrow because he thought that that character fit him best. He was a little too bouncy for the Tin Man and too light to be the Lion. So he auditioned, got a callback from the director, Sidney Lumet, who, if you guys don't know, Sidney Lumet had done The Pawnbroker, 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, and The Whiz. Highly decorated Hollywood director. I've seen two of those. Yeah, he huh. is he is an incredible director. I think he's an Oscar award-winning director. And honestly, 12 Angry Men is still to this day one of my favorite films and he managed to take 12 men in a room. Mm-hmm. And it like the 90% of this film takes place in this one room with these 12 men and it is captivating. It is incredible. I loved it. So, he said he really had no problem with the dancing and he was pretty good at his reading. And so Sydney called him back and he felt really proud, but a little scared, which is so funny to think of because you think of Michael Jackson auditioning for literally anything. Mm-hmm. So spoiler alert, he got the part. What? Yeah. Okay. So here's an article in time magazine. I'm going to read this verbatim. 
Okay. An article of Time Magazine online by yeah. Steve Knopper on December 3rd, 2015. This kind of tells the story. The Wiz came along at a perfect time for Barry Gordy and Motown Records. To finish Lady Sings the Blues, Gordy had to sink $2 million of his own money because Paramount's top executive had told him the maximum the studio could spend on a Black film that time was $500,000. Oh, wow. Can you imagine that? For them to to say, oh, like for a white movie, we'll spend this much. But for a black movie, this is all you get. Unbelievable. He said, this is not a black film. This is a film with black stars. And there were clashes on set as Diana Ross made her transition from music diva to Hollywood diva, demanding an upgrade of her period piece wardrobe. But the 1972 drama Lady Sings the Blues was a success in the end, and it drew five Oscar nominations, although Ross did lose Best Actress to Liza Minnelli for the movie Cabaret. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that would have been a hard year. In 77, Motown bought the rights to The Wiz, a script based on the Broadway hit with an African-American star putting their own spin on The Wizard of Oz. Gordy and producer Rob Cohen cast Ross, then 33, as Dorothy, and uh, Sidney signed on as director. After a number of false starts, they did land on Sidney Lumet, who had collaborated with a young Al Pacino on Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, and, of course, a couple other things. At 53, Lumet was an old Hollywood hand with a fast-talking charisma, ending sentences with, darling sweetheart, Mm -hmm. to give the whiz an orchestral punch Lumet sought out an old friend to request a favor. Da-da-da, fade hand. He called Quincy Jones. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Q did not want to do it. And just a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. Uh, The reason why Quincy Jones was actually called Q was not because he was named Quincy. The reason why they called him Q is because he actually loved barbecue. That's awesome. (laughs) My man. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I think my, my brother can tell you uh, barbecue is, is God's work. Agreed. It so, is. It's like nectar from the gods. Uh, Q didn't want to do it. Jones had only like three songs from the Broadway show, which was Home, Brand New Day, and a number called Ease On Down the Road. But he felt indebted to Sidney, who had hired him to score many films in the past. He said, I felt I owed him more than one. I owed him a lot. LeMay stocked the whiz with top-tier African-American talent, and that was Ross, Richard Pryor, Lena Horn, Rob Cohen, head of Motown Productions. Now you, were, you guys remember also Nipsey Russell was in this. Nipsey Russell. Oof. Nipsey <clears throat> Russell, one of the best dancers on the planet. Iconic, yeah. Yeah. So Rob Cohen, head of Motown, thought that Michael Jackson would be perfect for the role of the scarecrow. He approached Gordy with the idea, and to his surprise, Gordy agreed. Ah, oh, Michael's great, he said. Michael's a star. Sydney was a little harder to convince. He wanted <laughs> he wanted Jimmy J.J. Walker, star of TV's Good Times. As the Scarecrow? As the Scarecrow. <clears throat> Which I could see that, though. If you know Good Times, I could see that. Because we, like, yeah. we grew up watching him, and he was like, he was one of the big stars of that show. Which, by the way, ironically, Janet Jackson would go on to play Penny on Good Times. Correct. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's right. Oh yeah. my gosh. She yeah. gets burned by an it would iron. Be, uh, it would be adopted by Wolona. Yeah. An interesting link up from earlier. I believe Lady Sing the Blues also had Isabel Sanford, who went on to be in the Jeffersons. Oh, wow. And, you mentioned earlier. And for, yes, the theme song of which was sung by Wolona. Was it? I never realized that. Janet, 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 du, <clears throat> Janet Dubois, who played Wolona on Good Times. Sings mm-hmm. the theme song to the Jeffersons. Oh, which is one of the greatest theme songs of all time. Yes, it is. It really is. 
That and is Kennedy awesome. had a secretary named Lincoln, and Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy. Uh, <laughs> and I quit. Um, so Quincy was skeptical of Michael too. So it wasn't just Sydney who was like, mm. so Cohen arranged a meeting flying the then 19-year-old Michael to New York. And finally, uh, Sydney and Quincy saw the qualities that Cohen saw. That boy is so sweet. He is so pure. LeMay cried, yelled, exulted. <laughs> he was excited. I want him as the scarecrow. The final barrier for him to get over was Joe Jackson. Oh, good luck. Who wasn't thrilled about Michael doing a project that would further separate himself financially from the rest of his siblings. Cohen mollified Joe by offering roughly $100,000 for Michael to play the scarecrow. When The Wiz began filming in New York, the 27-year-old producer moved Michael and LaToya into a Manhattan apartment, and Michael was on his own for the first time. He lived a normal life except for a strange habit that he discovered, which was Michael liked to take baths in Perrier water. Sounds like an expensive habit. It does, that bath. Yes, yeah, quite even now also I mean, how do you warm that up like that seems like it's more trouble than it's worth yeah just yeah i don't um, and how did you ever discover that that's the thing you like to start with <laughs> over regular <laughs> water yeah did you compare and contrast i, I yeah. prefer perrier filming for the whiz began on october 3rd 1977 and concluded on december 29th 77 and funny enough it was filmed in astoria studios in queens which i actually would film a couple shows in wow yeah they have a, a story uh, they have Astoria studios and they also have silver cup down there and then i think those are the two big ones but yeah i actually know the studio new york's decaying new york state pavilion from the 1964 world's fair was used as a set for munchkinland and astroland at coney island was used for the 10-man scene cyclone as the backdrop while the <laughs> world trade center served as the emerald city the scenes filmed in the Emerald City were elaborate. And this is incredible. They used, and we've I've, I've watched the scene again. They used 650 dancers. For the Emerald City scene? Yes. Oh, wow. Actually, 650 dancers for that. Can you imagine the scale? That's insane. It's like Baz Luhrmann level of, yeah. Baz looked at that and went, that's too much. Yeah, that's a lot. There were 385 crew members. I've worked on a crew where there were six people. <laughs> and we made the movie just fine but holy cow 385 crew members and 1200 costumes which were designed by tony walton and enlisted the help of fashion designers for the emerald city sequence the, the emerald city sequence by itself is insane and they they got stuff from like oscar de la renta mm -hmm. <laughs> albert whitlock created the film special effects and stan winston did the makeup did he really? Yeah. So like this wow. film is full of incredible people and loaded. incredible talent. And the thing is, the shoots were long and grueling, which I like. I've never heard of uh, anyone shooting a movie. And they're like, that was easy. Thank you. <laughs> no, easy. No, all shoots are just, there's always something. So they would last all day underneath the World Trade Center towers. And at night, the cast went out to play in New York City. Cohen took Michael along with a, a couple of the other cast members to Studio 54, mm -hmm. the disco hotspot known for its crazy sexual escapades and celebrity regulars like Andy Warhol, Mick Jagger, Cary Grant, and Brooke Shields, who we will actually talk about a little later. The rest of the club took notice whenever Michael Jackson danced. The gay side of the dance floor would stop, and the hetero side would stop. 
apparently they danced like it was a high school dance with just girls on one side, boys on the other, ah. and no one ever touched. So I love the lore of Studio 54, by the way. Like just any story of Studio 54, I will eat up. I love mm. it. Um, During lunch on set, Sydney would tell Michael, who was completely oblivious to the situation, that the women around him were ricocheting like bullets all over the place. On set, Michael took extreme seriousness with his choreography sessions and who had with uh, Louis Johnson, who had been a pioneering African-American ballet dancer over the years, pushing Hollywood's racism. In the film, Michael's most impressive steps are with Diana Ross as he clumsily learns to walk after being imprisoned by crows on his scarecrow pole. In giant clown shoes, he stumbles, rolls on the ground, knocks out his knees. He had seen Charlie Chaplin. He was a great fan of Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, said Johnson, who was in his early 80s. By phone from his New York home, said, so I let him use it. He asked me, can I do this? And then enchanted it. Jackson's scarecrow costume was hot and cumbersome with a huge curly wig, hat, vests up with scratch, scraps of newspaper, and not to mention a painted-on nose. Tom Walton, the film's production and costume designer, didn't know that Michael was tormented by his brother's constant teasing that they called him ugly and big nose. He was thrilled to have his nose covered, Walton said. His costume was stuffed with newspapers and bits of trash, which was cumbersome, but he made it work. Quincy Jones was always present. In the film, Jones appears dressed in gold, playing a giant piano in Times Square. <laughs> he, too, began to pay attention to Jackson. When it came time for the Scarecrow part, Michael stepped to the microphone and began to sing. The not-bright-sounding Michael Jackson of I Want You Back, but the 18-year-old Michael Jackson, whose voice had evolved into something smooth and powerful as the Concord. Cohen, the producer, noticed Jones gaping. He looked at Michael the way a jaguar looks at a goat. Nice. <laughs> Cohen said, it was like, I want him. Mm -hmm. Jones made his move on set. At one point, he took Michael aside and explained a scarecrow bit in the script. The Greek philosopher's name is pronounced Socrates, not Socrates. Oh, like in Bill and Ted? Yes, or <clears throat> Socrates. Well, it's Socrates. Socrates, yeah. Socrates, Socrates and Bill and Ted, yeah. 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 As Jones would tell the story, he asked Michael right then if he could take a shot at producing his next solo album. Now, that stuck with Michael. During the Wiz post-production, he called Quincy unexpectedly during a rare home hiatus from touring, and they were on the line for 45 minutes. The experienced producer doing most of the talking about studio equipment, Star Wars, the newest synthesizer models, and unfinished clip of the Wiz that he had seen. Michael, Michael mostly listened with mm-hmm and the occasional whoo. The key moment in this partnership came when Michael said that he had been writing songs. I hear something in my head. I make the sounds with my mouth. I can do that. Quincy became excited. There was an instrument that can make the sounds you want. I can write anything down on paper. The veteran arranger said, if you can hear it, I can write it down. The exchange which Michael recorded ends with Quincy requesting his number. The Wiz cost $22 million. In 1977? That was a huge amount of money then, wasn't it? Huge. Yeah, Ooh, Will's going to look it up. Will's going to look yeah. it up. Kind of become my thing. Oh, oh boy! How much is it now? Okay. So twenty-two million seventy-seven. Hold on one second. Okay, so a million dollars is worth about four and a half million. So you said it's twenty-two. Nine, ninety, ninety-ish million. Give or take, yeah. So we're looking at about ninety-six point eight million dollars. 
Yeah. Almost a hundred million. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot. I mean, it's, it's yeah, that's Marvel money. Yeah, that's Marvel money. Uh, it did not perform well at the box office. Nope. Like, like T said, it was a spectacularly flawed experiment. Michael and Diana have terrific chemistry though, even though she is miscast for the part. And then the article goes on to say it wasn't because she was too old, although she is, but it's because she's playing Dorothy the same way she played Billie Holiday. Hmm. So it, it was kind of like the you didn't change anything. You're playing the same person that you were before. A less obvious problem was during filming, Lumet's wife at the time, Gail Jones, daughter of Wiz star Lena Horne, had approached the director on set and asked for a divorce. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. The usually exuberant Sydney became despondent, the quality that came out distinctly in the film, which is interesting because if you watch, it's definitely a different tone, but if you watch Rosemary's Baby, Frank Sinatra asked for a divorce from Mia Farrow on set. Mm -hmm. And you can see a, almost switch in her performance. You can tell almost which ones were recorded before, which ones were filmed before she got the divorce and then after. And you can tell there is a difference. Like stuff like that. It's like cooking with love. You can tell. The Wiz proved to be a commercial failure as the now $24 million production only earned $13.6 at the box office. Uh, yeah. Though now pre-release broadcasts have been sold to CBS for $10 million, And in the end, it had a net loss of basically $10.4 million for Motown and Universal. So it was a flaw. Now, I will say they actually, CBS, I think, I think it was CBS, did a live version of The Wiz. So That sounds right. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of those programs were having, like they did Peter Pan and they did Grease and they did Hairspray. So like all those live shows. But yeah, like in the end, it was not net positive. It was definitely a bomb. So it was the most expensive musical ever made. <laughs> the film's failure steered Hollywood studios away from producing all Black film projects that had become popular during the Black exploitation era for many years. So it was actually detrimental to the progress of Black-led films for a very long time. How crazy is that? That's wild, yeah. And it's unfair, too. Critics panned The Wiz upon its release, which happened in October of 78. Many reviewers basically directed their criticism to Diana Ross, who they believed was too old. I mean, if you guys can't figure it out, everyone thought Diana Ross was too old at 33. Cheese and crackers. The Groove Book of Hollywood noted that the picture finishes off Diana Ross's screen career as the film was Ross's final theatrical feature. In his 2004 book Blockbuster, Tom Schoen refers to The Wiz as expensive crud. How does he really feel? Seriously. Yeah. In the book, Mr. and Mrs. Holiday, the author criticizes the script, noting that The Wiz was too scary for children and too silly for adults. Ray Bolger, who played the Scarecrow, in the 1939 Wizard of Oz film, did not think highly of The Wiz, stating that The Wiz is overblown and it will never have the universal appeal that the classic MGM musical obtained. Oh, wow. I mean... It is scary. I agree with that point. Yeah, I do agree <laughs> with that. It is upsetting. But, like, it is a cult following, and I remember watching The Wiz as a kid. I friggin' loved it. And I was scared by it. Yeah. But, yeah, I was a little when I saw it, too. I, I don't think I've ever been really scared in my life There's some disturbing images in that movie. did you watch yeah. return to oz yes i did okay jackson's performance as a scarecrow was one of the only positive reviewed elements of the film 
with critics noting that Jackson possessed genuine acting talent and provided the only genuinely memorable moments. Jackson stated, I don't think I could have been any better. I really don't. In 1980, Jackson stated that his time working on The Wiz was his greatest experience so far. I will never forget that. Mm -hmm. And because this ends on a happy note, I'm going to end right here (laughs) because it doesn't really get any better, guys. I'm sorry. Well, we are getting into the 80s catalog of Michael Jackson, which I think is beloved by many. No, it's not the music that yeah. I'm worried oh, about. Oh, God, it's his personal life. It is personal Got life it. is about to just steer right into traffic that is oncoming on the Autobahn, and your brakes are out. Got it. So, that's where we're ending. Do you guys have any thoughts? Did my brother fall asleep again? No, I'm here. No, I'm here. Oh, good. Um, I was just trying to think of, of a thought. Um, I mean, we're, we're kind of at the, we're right on the precipice of, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a star from the Jackson five. He was kind of the breakout, you know, sensation of that, but we're, we're right on the precipice of him becoming the biggest star on the planet. Yeah. Well, like we're, we're right on the edge of that right now. Um, Which is well, crazy. The Wiz is about yeah. the Wiz is about the last thing he does that doesn't turn gold when he touches it. Which is crazy because if you think of what he's done up to this point, it's all noteworthy. I mean, the Jackson Five. You know, he's in a major movie. He's and he's, he's a known he's, for God's sake. Yeah, it's just amazing to see the next level for him is is just fame on an unconscionable level. It's insane. Yeah, it becomes you know it's Elvis. It's yeah. Yeah, yeah, and actually, we we do touch on Elvis, I think, in the next episode. Oh wow! Also, like, if you know Michael Jackson, then you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't no, don't worry, kids. We're not getting to any of his marriages yet. Don't worry yet. That that will happen in episode twenty-two. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that that he is about to become the biggest star the world has ever seen. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like. There's not a lot of merchandising that goes along with with Michael Jackson's name. Like you think about it with the Jackson Five, they had the cartoons, they had the lunchbox, they had t-shirts, they had everything. Like, and you look at a band like New Kids on the Block, which literally like their merchandising rivaled that of Star Wars mm. or Funko Pops. Like they had merch. Michael doesn't really do that. It's, it's just his talent. Yeah, I, mean, I think his name gets tied to a couple of things, but you're right. He, he makes it on being a... Well, he'll very famously be in a commercial, but we'll, uh, I'm sure you'll get there later. Oh, yeah, we get there. That's Why do you think I don't drink Pepsi? <laughs> Number one, you're from South Carolina, and we don't do that. And then okay. the other is, yeah. Just not done. No, no. You don't drink Pepsi if you're from South Carolina. It is literally sacrilege. From the south in general. You will have yeah. to be buried in an unconsecrated grave. <laughs> they will not speak. Yes. No. You, 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 you are to drink Dr. Perky or Shasta before you drink that. Bingo. <laughs> or Chet. Or Chet. <laughs> or Sam's Choice. Sam's Choice. Sam's Choice. Oh my God. Uh, if that's uh, if that's all the thoughts you guys have, I will gladly give away our uh, stuff. So people can talk to us and do things. So you can support the show because if you think that we're doing really good, and why wouldn't you? I can't you, imagine why you wouldn't want to write us a stroke as a check after this one. <laughs> I mean, this one had everything. It had musicals, my brother crapping a giant black snake in a, our grandmother's bathtub, and me and Shasta. And, and Shasta, Shasta, yeah. <laughs> 
you can you can uh do that over at patreon.com at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven and i do want to say guys thank you so much to uh our patrons you guys are awesome we could not do the show without you love you to the moon and back you can also find us on twitter at rock and roll lt our instagram is rock and roll heaven pod our facebook is rock and roll heaven pod still not saying our website you can email us rock and roll heaven lt at gmail.com and please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts, pantheonpodcast.com, including Mistress Carrie and the Rock and Roll Archaeology Show, because they are amazing shows. And uh, I would just like to take a moment to plead to you guys, if you could, if you're, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, if you could just rate us and review us. But if you're going to give us a one-star review, I do implore you to please email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And tell us why before you give us a one-star review. Hey, we got we got a, a new rating Monday or Tuesday, and it was five stars and very complimentary. Nice. Yes, it was. And I want to actually thank that person really quick, which is uh, Sally Florida. want to give you a shout-out. Thank you so much for the five-star review. She said, stumble upon this podcast and find it very informative. Keep up the good work. If you still think we're doing good work uh, after this episode... Just wait till next week. <laughs> well, I will say that the, the podcast is, you know, a living, breathing thing, and it evolves and changes, and that's why we give out our socials. It's a great place for discussion. How can we add? What can we look at? You know, what, you know, we, we even have some episodes we're going to be revisiting that we talked about. You know, yeah, and you, can, feedback. and you can find out, you know, like, because this episode is going to be late, you can find out that my dumbass brother blew a tire and didn't have a spare, so. Yes, and that's why we... That's why the show is uh, late this week. Le- legit. Flat yes. tire. <laughs> we're not kidding when we post that on Instagram. That actually happened. Yeah, no. Where were you when you blew the tire? Uh, I was, thankfully, I was at my office. Um, oh, I wasn't, oh, okay. Because, because LD will attest, there's a, I mean, it's about 40 miles from where I live to where I work. There's a stretch of 20 miles where there's literally nothing. Yeah. There's not literally. Even, there's no lights. There aren't, there aren't light, like, there, right. There aren't lights. There aren't houses. There aren't gas stations. There's trees and a road, and that's all there is. For and there's also miles. there's also one other major thing lacking in that area, which is cell service. Yeah. Uh, yes. What it doesn't lack is scary kamikaze deer. Yes, that's literally the horror that that goes through my head every time I drive to your places. Could this be the day that deer just you know came home and found out that his wife was having an affair and just won't stand at all and it and and you're you happen to be driving by at that exact moment and he's like screw it <laughs> yeah <laughs> like again. that is that is what I worry about every time I drive to your house that's why I'm like I gotta leave moms at like three in the afternoon because it gets abnormally dark in that one stretch and the yes. we'll call them uh the hamlets you pass through are rather sparse when it comes to amenities yeah. extremely uh, uh very extremely and get with us on the socials and whatnot because we have fun discussions like what's your workout jam because yeah. <laughs> uh will and i will and i figured out today that we both work out to huey lewis in the news i mean who doesn't me i work out because you don't podcasts. because you don't actually like exercise and stuff i don't so exercise but i also only listen to podcasts <laughs> I listen to Broadway musicals and podcasts. It's a, it's, a weird, it's a it's a weird jam, but I'm telling you, put on uh uh hit me like a hammer it's, and just do do oh. reps to the to do reps to the beat. It's it's the perfect pace. Well, uh that's pretty much our show for today, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for part six of the Michael Jackson opus. <laughs> uh Lord only knows how many parts this is going. 
Uh, so, you know, thanks for hanging in there with us. Fingers crossed this will be like the the podcast that people go to to find out all their information about Michael Jackson. So we haven't missed anything, that's for sure. Shut up. You guys are dicks. (laughs) (laughs) My brother going last week going, well, apparently LD's computer doesn't have a delete button. (laughs) It's very important to know Michael Jackson's diet, okay? If he wants to eat a ham sandwich, I need to report on that, okay? I agree. Thank you. All right, so details. So, from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, all you guys out there, just remember the light of the tunnel might be someone doing a Pepsi commercial. Hey, what? I'm the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> T, do you have anything to say to the audience? Bye, everybody. And Mr. Will the Thrill. Uh, I'll just end by saying, LD, you are the lady in my life. Oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Uh, to end, just, I, you know, you hurt me. You perturb me. You piss me off. I, all that stuff is just the way you make me feel. Uh, <sighs> all right. To end this episode, <laughs> Mercifully. I'm going to play you guys uh, the one song that I think everybody in this room can agree on is one of the best songs from the musical The Wiz. It's one that I have a lot of memories of from my childhood. So I'm going to end this episode by playing Ease On Down the Road. Thank you guys so much. We'll catch you next week. Love you all. Ease on down. Ease on down the road. (gasps) Ease on down. Ease on down the road. (laughs) Ease on down. Ease on down the road.
Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You used to associate crickets with silence. But since you bought a house in the suburbs, you know crickets hate silence. If any other creature realized rubbing its legs together made a piercing high-pitched noise, they might think, maybe I won't do that. Constantly. All night long. Luckily, you can save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. Now that's something to make noise about. Just not constantly. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 